Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll begin here uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in your great love for us that was manifested through uh, the uh, atonement, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We thank you that we have been, uh, even though undeservedly, recipients of your love toward us, and we know that that is the motivation of our love for others. And so please help us to be those whose lives are characterized by love, by sacrifice, by commitment, by a delight for others, and that you would help us to grow in these areas, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we began uh, the chapter 1 Corinthians 13, which is, of course, as we all know, Paul's famous love chapter. And we saw the first three verses of this chapter where Paul highlighted and emphasized the centrality of love to everything that we do. He gave a list of things that we could do, and if we did those things but did them without love, then we either are nothing or produce nothing, and so on and so forth. Even if we, as we saw, were to exercise flawless giftedness and incredible sacrifice, and yet do it without love, it would ultimately mean nothing for us. And in view of those things, and at that message last week, we gave a definition of love that I want to repeat here for us today. And I want to remind us how we got to this definition of love very briefly. Um, And I spent an extended amount of time explaining this in the introduction last week and won't spend that same time today, but just briefly remind us. uh, We tend to view love today either in one of two extremes. So if you were to ask somebody, what is love? Oftentimes, they would either explain it to you in terms of only an emotion, feeling, affection, desire, delight. Or even worse than this, and the view that our world has taken is that love is something that can be very uh, temporary, even in something as close and as intimate as the bonds of marriage. I will fall in love and fall out of love. And so it is transient, it is temporal, so on and so forth. On the other hand, um, we may talk about love only in terms of commitment, of raw choice. I have chosen to set my love upon you, and both of these things are true, but I think it is a mistake to view one to the exclusion of the other. Love is an emotion, it is an affection, it is delight, and it is desire. This is why your wife asks you, do you love me? And when you say yes, she follows that up with what? Do you like me? (laughs) Because she wants to know that there is some sort of an affection here. That's kind of, I think, what she's getting at. It's because when we talk about love, we want to know that our spouse is committed to us, but also that our spouse is more than committed, that our spouse actually has feelings of affection and of delight toward us. Our spouse wants to be with us, okay? Uh, On the other hand, um, we we cannot be satisfied uh, with one of these two extremes, that it is only commitment or that it is only... Uh, affection. And what we said is, why can't it be both? And I think Scripture would bear this out for us. We saw some passages last week that explain this. And so ultimately, we kind of landed with Jonathan Edwards uh, and his definition. And uh, since this is coming from uh, a couple hundred years ago, you have to forgive the, the change in English here, but I think you'll get the point. Jonathan Edwards says that it is the inclination and will of the soul. And what he meant by that is it is the inclination, it is the desire, it is the delight, and it is the will of the soul. It's the commitment aspect. It is the choosing to love aspect. And love has to encompass both of those realities. Love is both the desire, the emotion, the delight, and the will, the commitment, and the choice. And in light of that, 1 Corinthians 13 begins explaining to us what love is. Remember, this is in the context of spiritual gifts. 
So Paul is telling us what spiritual gifts are, how to use them in the context of the local church. He begins in chapter 12, verse 1. He goes all the way through the end of chapter 14. And in the middle of this is 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is not getting distracted. He's not writing and he's saying, quick, I have a thought, write this down before I forget it about what love is. Rather, what Paul is doing here is he is saying that the attitude and the attribute of love is that which characterizes the way that I live out my spiritual gifts in the church. I can serve others in the church with my spiritual giftedness and do it without love. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. This is the motivation that has to drive uh, what you're doing. And so we saw the first three verses, and now what he's going to do in verses 4 through 7 is he is going to give us the attributes of what love are. Love is this, it's not this, it's this, 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 but not this, not this, and not this. And so he gives kind of these one-word definitions. It is this, it is this, and so these are the attributes of love. And, uh, of course, one of the challenges that um, I always face as uh, a pastor is what is the, the speed at which we are to go through some of these passages. And so we are kind of slowing down just a little bit here because each of these words we want to look at in turn and kind of just take that diamond and just rotate it around back and forth and look here, look there, and kind of explain. So we're only going to get through three attributes of love, which is less than one verse here. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 4. And Lord willing, get through these first three attributes. So, as short as it is, let us read this together. 1 Corinthians 13, and, and we'll go ahead and just read the whole verse to get through the whole verse here. But 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. So, let's look at these one at a time. In turn, and that's, I don't have an outline on the screen here, but if there is an outline, it's point number one, love is patient. Point number two, love is kind. And point number three, love does not envy. And that's kind of the, the way that we'll be looking at this today. Paul begins here in this section by saying that love is patient. And the word patient that he uses is the Greek word makrothumeo. It is one of two primary verbs that is used in the New Testament that uh, is translated as patient or patience. And this word, I'm going to put a couple of definitions uh, up on the screen here for you. Uh, but this word, uh, according to one lexicon, means to remain tranquil while waiting, to have patience or to wait, to bear up under provocation without complaint, to be patient or forbearing or to delay. And the word means, as you can see in these definitions here, we'll get to the others in a minute, uh, this word means more than merely waiting for a long time. This is not just I'm waiting, because that's the external part of what I'm doing when I'm patient. On the outside, I'm waiting, okay? These definitions touch on more than just the act of patience. They touch on the motivation, the heart, and the attitude, the disposition, and so you must have both a patient, uh, both patient behavior and a patient disposition or patient heart. Both are, this, this word requires both. You can't just say, I'm patient on the outside, but not on the inside. It has to be inside and outside, both. So patience, according to these definitions, is not waiting on something while you're tapping your foot or looking down at your watch, okay? This is, it's, it's more than this. You are, as the definition says, remaining tranquil while you are waiting. This is your disposition while you are waiting. You are, as it says here, bearing up under something. It's as if when you're being patient, there was this weight that is on your shoulders and you are bearing up without complaining, okay? It's not that I'm waiting for, I'm holding this weight for 10 seconds and then I can set it down. It is this weight is here for a lengthened period of time and I'm holding this weight and I'm not complaining at all. I'm not, I'm not grumbling. 
not griping, not saying, oh, I can't wait to put this down. Can you believe I have to hold this? Can you believe this person is testing my patience in this way? You're bearing up, and there's no complaint going on while that's happening. One commentator defines it this way, and I've just put all these up here on the screen, uh, and says, the Greek denotes having the power to hold the mind long, or the opposite to rash anger. So anger on the one hand, or rash anger is on the one hand, and then patience on the other hand, my mind is being held for a long time. I'm, I'm taking my mind and I'm saying, okay, I will bear up under this, mentally speaking. Another commentator says that patience is the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. Okay, somebody wrongs me, and I don't have to get revenge or retaliate or strike back at them for what they've done. Or I don't have to tell a thousand other people what this person did to wrong me because I don't get any delight from that. Um, And I will say that uh, the King James Version is probably hard to improve on. And it says, it doesn't use the word patience, but it says charity or love suffereth long. In other words, what patience is, is the ability to suffer for a very long time. I'm suffering now, and I'm continuing to suffer, and I'm also suffering now, and now I'm also suffering now, and I'm continuing to suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer, and I'm okay with that. That's what patience is. Uh, Albert Barnes says uh, the word used here, uh, macro through me, or macro through may, uh, denotes uh, longanimity, slowness to anger or passion, long-suffering, patient endurance, forbearance. It is opposed to haste, to passionate expressions and thoughts, and to irritability. Patience means you're not irritable. It denotes the state of mind which can bear long when oppressed, provoked, calumniated, and when one seeks to injure us. Patience is a virtue. Anger and impatience uh, or or, or anger uh, and patience are the opposite of one another. And I think, and I'll say this is my opinion, I think in my opinion that patience is one of the harder virtues to cultivate today. And the reason that I think this is the case is because we are, in 21st century American culture, almost never, ever required to put our patience to the test. I mean, you can point to things in your life and say, I had to be patient here, but probably the kind of patience that we have to cultivate is not like the kind of patience that our great-great-grandparents had to cultivate. There's a difference here. Everything for us, in the most part, is instantly accessible. If you wanted something right now, you could go out and get it. You could go out and get whatever you want, even if you don't have the money to go get that thing. Okay, You can get it alone or whatever, and whatever you want is instantly accessible. How often are you required to exercise your patience? That muscle, that is to say the patience muscle, is suffering from atrophy or lack of use on the whole. I'm not, I'm not saying that nobody, there are people going through incredible trials. I'm just saying in America, on the whole, in general, so to speak, we have a tendency to not exercise this muscle very often. This may explain why it is uh, so many in our culture today have a short fuse and are prone to get angry when provoked even just a little. We are accustomed to getting whatever we want, whenever we want it, and consequently we expect that all of the time. And from this perspective, impatient people, people who have not cultivated patience, I would suggest to us our weak. You say, why? Why would you classify someone who is impatient as weak? It is because they lack the strength to stand up to themselves. If you are impatient, you don't have the ability to stand up to yourself in a sense and say, no, we're not going to do that right now. You are a slave to your passions or to your desires. Uh, Impatient people lack the strength to stand up to their desires and put them in their place. Impatient people need parenting 
they need self-parenting. Now, all of us need parenting, and all of us need self-parenting, okay? But impatient people reveal that they don't have that particular thing. They need to learn how to tell themselves no and put on self-control. And I would suggest to us that the virtue of patience is something that should be classified underneath the umbrella of self-control. So you have self-control, and you have things that would fall in line underneath self-control, and one of those things that falls in under that umbrella is patience. You can't really have a substantial conversation about patience if you don't also talk about self-control. Are you the kind of person who is able to control yourself? Okay? Self-control is the ability to control your desires. You want this, and you tell yourself, no, you cannot have this. And so you exercise self-control when you want to eat ice cream, and you know that you've had too much ice cream already, and so you say, no. That's self-control. That's self-parenting. Okay? Uh, the ability to tell yourself no, to, to refrain, even though your desires are saying, I want this. And so there are all sorts of things that require self-control, and we could go on with a very long list here. Using kind words to talk to your neighbor when you don't want to use kind words to talk to your neighbor is self-control. Coming into marriage sexually pure is something that requires self-control. And there's all sorts of things from day-to-day life that we go through where we say, in order to do what is right in this situation, I need to exercise self-control. I need to parent myself. The Bible commends self-control as a virtue. In fact, it has something pretty striking to say about people who are not self-controlling. In Proverbs 25, 28, we read that a man without self-control is like what? A city that is broken into and without walls. So here in the book of Proverbs, self-control, or the lack thereof, is the difference between the wise person and the foolish person. The wise person is the patient, self-control. The foolish person is the one without self-control. Having self-control, by the way, in one area, does not qualify you for having self-control. Self-control means that you are self-controlled in all areas of life. It means that you have the ability to exercise control over your passions and desires. And essentially, what you are doing is your passions and your desires, if you picture them as kind of this wild horse that just wants to go wherever it wants to go, self-control is putting reins on this horse and saying, you are going to channel all of that passion and all of that energy in the direction that I tell you you're going to channel that in. You want to channel that chaotically. Uh, You want to channel that in a way where it is just instantly fulfilling everything and going here and going there. But no, we're putting the reins on our passions and saying, you're going here right now, and now you're going here, and now you're stopping, and you're doing this, and you're doing that. That's what self-control is. When Proverbs says that those without self-control are like a city without walls, what it means is that people without self-control are vulnerable and weak. It's like a city broken down and without walls, vulnerable and weak. Or we could say that it means that you're a fool. People who have no ability to put the reins on themselves and direct themselves in an orderly way is a, that that person is a foolish person. Now, all of us come into the world without self-control. Okay? All of us are born, and we begin our early lives as children without this attribute. Okay? If you don't believe that, you can go to the nursery and take a look. Okay? You can see this lack of this attribute being expressed there. Not our nursery, other nurseries, okay? Um, One of the parenting tasks is to teach your children self-control. And so Proverbs 22, 15 says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far 
from him. So parents need to tell their children that riding their bike off of the roof is a bad idea. Okay? Parents need to tell their children that eating ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner is not a wise thing to do. Okay? So some of your children would do that. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. Okay? Some of us might do that if we did. <laughs> Without parenting, children are going to give in, they're going to yield to their desires. They have not developed that muscle yet. That muscle is not there for the, for the child. The child says, I want this, I'm going to get it right now. I want this, I'm going to get this. I want this. It's like that horse with no reins. I just go here, I go here, ice cream, doing this, doing that, da 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 Okay? We come into this world without self-control. Children do not have, uh, and, and by God's grace, through parenting and all sorts of things, they learn this, but children do not have a very strong ability to resist their desires. Some people, and this is sad to say, grow up into adulthood having never cultivated that muscle. And so we have people who are in adult bodies but have childlike minds because they just do whatever their passions tell them to do. They tend to allow their desires to drive them whichever direction they want to go. And children, and many adults oftentimes have a passive relationship towards their desires. Not an active one. Not even, in fact, not even an awareness of this is what my desire is, but just I go here, I go here, I go there, I go there, I do this, I do that. Uh, a few years ago I saw a video. Um, there was some sort of a dog show, and um, the dog had to run through some sort of an obstacle course or something, and they, they lined up on either side of this course, like all of these dog treats on either side. And, and the dog has to run down the middle of this successfully without getting distracted by this. And the, the video was of this dog. It was, it was too much for him. And he starts running down, and he just, he gives in, and he goes here and there and back and forth, and just totally just ruins the whole thing, and eats every single treat along the way, and, and fails this particular test. No self-control. No ability to say, here's my desires, here's what I want, and I'm going to channel my activity in this direction. It's called being a slave to your desires. Self-control means that you are in control of your desires and your passions. If you do not have self-control, what that means is that instead of you controlling your passions, your passions control you. Patience, then, is a subset of this. When you are patient, you are listening to your desires raging inside of you, you're listening to your passions raging inside of you. You're listening to your wants raging inside of you. And you simply say, no. No. I'm going to suffer long. I'm going to bear up under this provocation for a long period of time. Impatient people just listen to their desires and act on them by instinct. Impatient people thus are held captive by their desires. Proverbs 29.11 reminds us, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Patience. Uh, the the NASB is kind of telling in this uh, verse, we'll put the NASB up here. The NASB says this, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. The fool, according to this verse, is an impatient person. The wise man, on the other hand, is patient. He restrains himself. He says, this is the desire I have. I'm going to put restraint on this. And that is the difference. But there is more to see here with this attribute of patience. And that has to do with the source of our patience. So one stake that we kind of put in the ground is that patience 
is a subset of self-control. Someone who has self-control is patient. Someone who has no self-control is impatient, rash, chaotic, so on and so forth. The other stake that we're going to put in the ground here on this topic of patience is that we need to be patient because God is patient. And what, what this reminds us of is that these attributes that we would call virtues, these things that God is calling us to cultivate in our own lives, are theological attributes. There is, there is a theological source or foundation or underpinning for these particular attributes that we're called to, to, to do. And this one is because God is a patient God. To be patient is to be like Christ. This is the theological foundation. And so we could look at a number of verses, but we're going to look at Romans 2 in verse 4 when we read this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience? God, the riches of God's patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In other words, don't presume upon God's patience. God is patient. He's not being patient so you can continue in sin. He's being patient so you can come to repentance. And so one of the attributes, one of the divine attributes of God is that he is a patient God. He is slow to anger, slow to wrath. Therefore, we ought to be like that in this way. And since we are talking about patience as an attribute of love... Love, you remember where we started with this today, love is patient. And since we love because he first loved us, I think it's a fair um, analogy to say we are patient because he was first patient with us. Where was God patient with me? Look at the cross. What do you deserve? You deserve wrath. And I deserve divine wrath. And one of the attributes that was a channel for the mercy of God to come to me at the cross was his attribute of patience. And therefore, we ought to, you, you will never have to be more patient with another human being, then God was patient with you. <laughs> we tried God's patience more than anyone has ever tried your patience. And so we ought to be patient because he was first patient with us. God's government of the universe is not done in chaotic and unruly passion. God is not running around, so to speak, wringing his hands saying, I better put out this fire over here and I got to put this fire out over here and oh, I can't believe they just made this mess over here and now I've got to do this and now I've got to do that and, and why can't humanity get its act together? What am I going to do now? God, God, God is sitting on his throne. He's, he's sitting, okay? He, he's... He's in control of himself, and he's patient with us. You might ask, um, as we're looking at this topic and looking at attributes here of, of love and of patience, and say, what areas, give me the examples of the areas that I should be patient in. And my answer to that would be all of them, all, all of the areas. There's no areas in which you, you don't have to be patient in. Um, but maybe just a, a couple of thoughts here to, to jog our memory a little bit. We do need to be patient in the little things, okay? Um, obviously, waiting on the train, waiting on your food to arrive, waiting on the person slowly walking in front of you that you can't get around on the sidewalk, okay? This does need to be stated because there are people who need an exhortation on this level, Impatience runs deep, okay? But we are, as you know, to be patient in all things. And most challenging to us 
is to be patient when we are wronged. To be patient is, as we already saw, to refrain from retaliation, both in action and in spirit. On the family level, we are to be patient when relationship conflicts come into the home. This does not, being patient with a family conflict does not mean we never address the conflict. It just means that the manner in which we address the conflict is done in patience. That we keep our cool and work through them rationally, logically, and orderly, not in unruly passion. On a church level, it means the same thing. Being patient with one another here in this church, not rushing to judgment, but enduring one another with joy. And this also means, and I think this is an important one for parents, that you include your children in on everything that you do, and you do not get exasperated or impatient that they can't do it as fast as you can. How else are they going to learn? Let your child sweep the floor, even though it's going to take 10 times longer and you're going to have to redo it when they're done. Okay? Just let them sweep the floor. Okay? They, they have to learn this, and this is part of discipleship, okay? Be patient in that. Let your child help you tear down a wall that you're remodeling, or teach your child how to keep the car clean and in good repair, or whatever it might be. Those things require patience, and if you're not a parent, you say, oh, that doesn't require patience, and then when you become a parent, you're like, that does require patience, <laughs> a lot of it. So these are just a few, again, all of the areas are which we should exercise patience, but here's just a few. Okay, so that's patience, and we got to keep rolling here. Love is kind. Love is patient, but love is also kind. This is the next attribute. Now, I would suggest to us that, in a way, patience and kindness are complementary attitudes toward one another. It's almost as if um, kind of two sides of the same coin here, and uh, this is what one um, uh, author says. He says, in Pauline theology, they, referring to patience and kindness, they represent the two sides of the divine attitude towards humankind. On the one hand, God's loving forbearance is demonstrated by his holding back his wrath toward human rebellion. On the other hand, his kindness is found in the thousandfold expressions of his mercy. And so, one side is patience and the other side is kindness. And once again, we're going to observe here, as we did just a moment ago, that the fountainhead of this is God himself. We are to be kind because God is kind. Kindness goes back to the character of God. We are kind because he was first kind to us. Kindness has, we might say, a theocentric nature about it. And we would see this in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. See, it's the pattern here from God himself. We also can see the kindness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in Matthew eleven thirty, where he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the kindness of Christ. He's kind to us. The divine attribute of kindness is fleshed out in God's children. And the litmus test, if you want to know what the litmus test is for whether you are a kind person or not, it is, as is almost always the case in these kinds of things, the home. And John MacArthur makes this clear when he says this. The first test to Christian kindness and the test of every aspect of love is the home. The Christian husband who acts like a Christian is kind to his wife and children. Christian brothers and sisters are kind to each other and their parents. They have more than kind feelings toward each other. They do kind and helpful things for each other to the point of loving self-sacrifice when necessary. In other words, if you are not kind at home, you are not kind. What is kindness? Uh, the Greek word is kreistuomai, and according to one lexicon, it means this, to be kind, loving, or merciful. And Albert Barnes defines the word this way. The word here used denotes to be good-natured, gentle, tender, affectionate. Kindness means 
that we are not harsh with one another, that you're not a jerk. This is what kindness means. And while kindness does begin in the home, it does not end in the home. And the reason that I think it begins in the home is because we are most likely to be our true selves in the home. Wherever you are most likely to be your true self is where you can most easily see the sins that you struggle with. And many times, for most of us, that is going to be in uh, the home. On the other hand, we are not as likely to be ourselves when we're out in public. When you go out in public, okay, you have to think for a second. Most of us do this intuitively now, but you kind of have to think. I'm going out in public. I don't want them to know what I'm like, and so I'm going to put on this facade, okay? We do this when we go to the grocery store, okay? We do this when we go to church. This is human nature for us. And in the home, we are most likely to be who we really are. Um, And I think I mentioned this last week. But you can go to your spouse in your home and ask them, am I a patient and kind person? And I think I mentioned that siblings would be very eager to put the list together for you of ways in which you're not kind and patient. And if you really want to have that view and you want to really understand, am I a kind and patient person, go ask your sibling, and they will sit down with you. It will be the most time that you've ever spent with your sibling because they'll be eager to do this, okay? But what are you getting from that? (laughs) You're getting probably more honesty than you're going to give yourself in that situation. And that could be a potential litmus test for um, finding out where you are in this area. And we could, um, as we did with patience, observe all the small ways in which we should be kind. And we would say, yes, all of those things are important. We should do kind and nice things like opening the door for somebody uh, and, and, and doing those kinds of little things. Those are important, those are good, and those are helpful. But being kind to people who are kind to us or being kind to someone with which we have no history with is kind of low-hanging fruit. It's kind of easy to do that. And so we are called to be kind to people who are not kind to us. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Let's pause here for a minute. Do you see how this is coming out of the divine character and the divine nature? He's saying, do this because God also does this. God, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You don't drive down through Wayne County at the farmer's fields, and it's raining, and you see like these square block-offs of rain, and the rain is only falling on the righteous person's field and the wicked person's field it's not on. No, why? This is part of God's benevolence. He's a kind God, and he's saying, God does this, now I expect you to do this. And then he says this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? (laughs) Not even the tax collectors do the same? What are you doing that pagans can't do? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody can be kind to people who are kind in return. That's easy. Anybody can be kind to people that they like. That's easy. But it is another matter entirely to be kind to people who hate you or people who persecute you. And that is the test of kindness. And just like patience, kindness is more than an external act. It proceeds from the heart. Kindness means that you love being kind. It's like the old example that we've used here in the past of the child who's standing up and the parent says, please sit down. And the child quickly and promptly sits down and then says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. These attributes, we are to be kind on the outside and kind on the inside. I desire 
and I delight in being kind to people, even people who persecute me and cause me to suffer. Love is patient, love is kind, and love does not envy. Envy is the first negative on the list. Positively, love is patient. Positively, love is kind. Negatively, love is not this. This is the Greek word zelao, and it means, according to one lexicon, to have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success, to be filled with jealousy or envy. Albert Barnes describes it this way, this word properly means to be zealous for or against any person or thing, to be eager for or anxious for or against anyone. Okay, Envy has to do with not being happy about the success of others. Uh, MacArthur observes, a loving person is never jealous. He is glad for the success of others, even if their success works against his own. And this is kind of the key part here, is that somebody else's success works against yours. Okay, so we talk about this in the corporate world a lot. Somebody got the promotion or the raise that you didn't get, and you were thinking you were going to get that, and now you're envious. No, you're happy for their success. Envy is a terrible sin. It is a terrible sin because of this reason. Envy chafes against divine providence. What, why, did your, why did they get that promotion? Because of divine providence. Why are you here? Because of divine providence. And envy says, God, the way you govern the world is not acceptable. God is the one who gave that person the ability to have such and such and to get such and such a position and you are mad that God did not grant you that ability. To continue on with Albert Barnes, he says this, The sense is love does not envy others uh, the happiness which they enjoy. It delights in their welfare, and as their happiness is increased by their endowments, their rank, their reputation, their wealth, their health, their domestic comforts, their learning, etc., and those who are influenced by love rejoice in all of this. Every good thing that comes their way, you celebrate with them over. Easy said, hard done. This is, by the way, the Tenth Commandment. We are not to covet or envy. We are not to covet or desire or envy our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's house, our neighbor's car, our neighbor's anything. We are also not to covet or envy our neighbor's success our neighbor's promotions, or our neighbor's intellect. Now, there are a couple of different ways to deal with an envious heart. One of those ways is that we can become scornful. And I would suggest that most of us have probably experienced this emotion before. Again, I know that I've shared this before, but I want to read to you one of Aesop's fables. Okay? Uh, this is Aesop's fable about the fox and the grapes, okay? And he says this, One day uh, a fox spied a beautiful branch, a bunch of ripe grapes, hanging from a vine, trained along the branches of a tree. The grapes seemed ready to burst with juice, and the fox's mouth watered as he gazed longingly at them. The bunch hung from a high branch, and the fox had to jump for it. The first time he jumped, he missed it by a long way, so he walked off a short distance, took a running leap at it, only to fall short once more. Again and again he tried, but in vain. Now he sat down and looked at the grapes in disgust. What a fool I am, he said. Here I am, wearying myself out to get a bunch of sour grapes that are not worth it. And off he walked very scornfully. So what did he do? He became scornful. They're just sour grapes. They weren't sour grapes, but he couldn't get it. He couldn't get what he wanted, and so he decided to become scornful over it. You might become envious of your neighbor's job and the pay that comes with it. And after a long time of lusting after this, you soon become scornful and think something like this. I wouldn't want that job. The hours are horrible, the environment is horrible, and you must just be a miserable person to have to work that awful job. 
Any, anyone relate to that? <laughs> or your neighbor pulls into his driveway with a brand new car that you want, and you envy that car, and you deal with your envy with scorn, and you look to your wife and say, I bet he's in all sorts of debt for that car. That's revealing an envious heart that has morphed into scorn. Or you look down at, at, at the church down the street, and it's growing faster than your church. Well, there must, be some, there must be something wrong over there. Maybe, maybe not. Anyone relate to that? Okay, like two of you. All right, where do we go from here? Um, there are a lot of ways in which we could apply this passage, and we have already done some of that throughout the message. We're not to be impatient. We are to be kind. We are not to become envious. And we've seen some examples, illustrations, and applications along the way. But I want to kind of remind us of something here as we kind of um, wrap this up today. And that is, I want to remind us, uh, first of all, we are talking about attributes of love, and we've seen three of them today. And what this reminds us of is the greatest display of love that the world has ever seen. And of course, everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. This was a patient love. It was a kind and benevolent love. It was a love that was not envious. And we are called to go and do the same. Now, I did not plan uh, on this, uh, but Aaron led us in this hymn earlier, and I have a quotation from it, and you'll have to forgive me because I didn't change it from Albert Barnes. This is not Albert Barnes, okay? This is uh, the, the hymn here. But it says this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. As a side note, I don't see stuff written that beautifully anymore today. If we were all tasked, if the whole human race was tasked. Do you see what this picture is presenting to us? If the entire human race was, was given everyone an ink pen, and the ocean was turned into ink, you would drain the ocean before you would finish writing about the divine love of God. And, and we have seen, someone said one time, you know, you know, we're going to study the attributes of God. Well, where do you start? You're standing in front of 10,000 oceans. Where do you put your toe in first? I mean, this is one of the reasons why it's going to take eternity to worship God, because that's how long it takes to worship God. And so where do you put your, where do you first, where do you begin? And so we have, we, we've looked at, three attributes of love that we're called to emulate, and we've seen how these attributes come out of the character of God. And so in a way, though we have been looking at us, we've been looking at God because our God is like this. And we, this is, what we've done today is not even, not even dipping your toe fully in. <laughs> it's just a little tiny bit of the love of God. God's love toward the sinner is the fuel that we need to go and love others. We read in John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. 
This message is not a lift yourself up by your bootstraps message and try harder to be patient and try harder to be kind and try harder not to envy. Okay? Try that and report back next week on how that goes. Okay? And if there's anything that we've learned through even this series in 1 Corinthians and especially our 9 a.m. series through Christian sanctification, it is that we are completely dependent on God for our sanctification. This is not a lift yourself up by your bootstraps sermon. This is a bathe in the love of God and thus receive the motivation and the desire to love your neighbor message. Rest in what God has done for you. Delight in what God has done for you. Look long at the gospel, and then you will see that God slowly begins to chip out these things in your own life. In light of that, four applications. These are probably a little bit more general, higher level. Um, Again, we saw some specifics in the message, but there's a lot of ways in which we can apply these. Number one, rest in the love of God for the enablement to love others. You can't love others without resting in, knowing, understanding God's love for you, okay? That's first. Number two is love others with patience. Again, easier said than done. Number three is love others with kindness. And last is love others by repenting from envy. And we can add to envy that scornful attitude. You want to say, see if you're envious, are you scornful of the successes of others? And we're called to repent of that. Again, if you need help with this, go ask someone who lives uh, under your roof. And I'm sure they are happy and very knowledgeable about your shortcomings in these ways. Ultimately, God is the one who gives us the grace to obey. And if you are here and don't know Christ as Savior and do not know this love of God, then I encourage you to repent, believe on Christ and he will redeem you from your fallen sinfulness. Thank you, God, for today, your grace, your love. We pray that you'd help us to implement what we've heard today for uh, your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.